Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for August 30th, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shifflett. Good evening, sir. All right, tonight's a great show. We're going to have on, for the first time on the Kudzu Vine, Dr. Matthew Garris. Um, He currently works at University of Illinois at Springfield, but he previously um, got his doctorate degree and I think did some student, um, I won't call it student teaching, but that's a K-12 term, uh, graduate assistant work at the University of Oklahoma. So he's more versed in Oklahoma politics, at least what's been going on recently. So he's going to join us and we're going to really talk about uh, Oklahoma State that um, it's a little more, I think, in the news than it typically is, and we'll get into why that is. Uh, But until then, um, Catherine, has Donald Trump finally stopped speaking um, the speech that he started giving about 10 o'clock Thursday night? (laughs) Yeah, finally. He just didn't want to stop. How long was it? Like an hour and 35 minutes or something? Yeah, it was quite long. It was long. Uh, There was a lot of of fire in there, a lot of... uh, Soaking of fear for those four days, and he uh, really uh, topped it off on Thursday. Yes. Um, before we get into actual content of the speech, uh, Tim, what I find so vexing about that is this is a man that has been reported to not have the best attention span. Yet when he has a microphone, he seems to have a better attention span than all of us. What's going on with this um, weird uh, duality here when it comes to him speaking and then him listening? I don't know if I would refer to it as attention span. It, I, I listened to the entire hour and ten minutes of that speech the other night, started about 20 after 10, and he was still rolling at 11.30, and and sometimes he gets off track, and his speeches get a little disjointed, it's like he's saying, oh, yeah, and another thing, and 20 minutes later, he's still doing, oh, yeah, and another thing, but uh, it, uh, whew, it, was, it was tough to watch, brother, let me, let me tell you. Yeah, and I didn't want to make it through all hour and ten minutes, but one thing I did notice, because uh, I think I watched pieces of it, I may watch pieces online afterward, is sometimes he'll say something, and it'll be like a question, and then he'll answer his question. Um, you know, something about Joe Biden. Oh, well, no, he's not. It's it's like, if he does that many times, that probably adds 10, 15 minutes to a speech, and it's just... I don't know where it gets you, and it's not like you're going to give the Emancipation Proclamation with some kind of self-dialogue um, stream of consciousness. And so <laughs> it's quite strange. Now, let's kind of go back and look at this total convention. Um, 
It was more virtual than they certainly intended, although later in the week, particularly for the big speeches like the First Lady, Donald Trump, um, I guess the Pence's, uh, there were live crowds. Uh, and that's a whole nother topic within this. But let's kind of look at the week or the four days. I don't know how four days becomes a week exactly. but that, And that's both parties. That's not a knock on the Republicans, one of the Democrats, but four days. Um, Catherine, what were some of your overarching themes or thoughts? It just seemed, it just seemed all about fear, about, um, you know, scaring uh, citizens into voting for Donald Trump and, um, you know, ramping up the division, the divisions in the country. Um, a lot of, uh, a lot of, Lies, a lot of lies. I mean, more lies than we can even count. And um, a lot of insignificant people. You know, I mean, since when does the girlfriend of the president's son get a prime time slot in the convention? And the daughters and all the sons and, you know, it just... Uh, to me, it showed a lack of um, substantial minds and leaders to uh, carry that message. Yeah, you're talking about Kimberly Guilfoyle. I think a lot of rap artists talk about spitting hot fire. I think after they watch that Kimberly Guilfoyle speech, they will no longer use that term. They will bequeath that term to her from ever and ever. Amen. After that speech. Um, Tim, what were some of your thoughts? Well, you know, overall, I guess they pulled pulled it off considering the chaos Trump had caused by continually changing venues. Um, I thought it was shameful that they used taxpayer-funded monuments and the White House's stage props. I, I just thought that was shameful. Uh, they're ignoring the virus. That that was a consistent theme. The other two was, I guess, a two-pronged attack. Uh, law and order and socialist radicals, blah, blah, blah. I don't think the socialist radical stuff really got any traction. I think they probably scored some points, especially with their base with the law and order theme. And this was a base-oriented convention, something that was put forth to fire up the, the, you know, base of the party. The best speakers were probably Daniel Cameron, the uh, Kentucky AG, um, Madison Cawthorn, the candidate in um, uh, the North Carolina 11th District who is paralyzed from the waist down at the end of the thing, he actually used braces and stood up on his feet and finished the speech, which I thought was really uh, really something to see. And And the only Trump that delivered a good speech, in my estimation, was Melania. Uh, not her delivery. Her delivery's 
you know, not that good. But the content of the speech itself was, you know, hopeful and healing and everything that, that the other Trump speech was not. You you mentioned Trump senior or Trump Jr.'s girlfriend. She had the worst speech at the convention. Donald Trump Jr. himself, he acted, he came out there acting like he was high or something or I, I don't know what was wrong with him. Mike Pompeo's speech was just, it, it was just flat. It wasn't any good. And Christy Nome, who they claimed the big rising star in the party, it, her speech was just lifeless. Uh, your president had neither the worst nor the best speech. It was just typical him. So um, that they at least played offense for a week. So I guess that's a positive for them. And you know, there we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They ran they ran the dive play uh, right at the middle. Um, it wasn't a very nuanced offense at that. Um, one thing right off the bat, before they even um, had their actual TV show, they apparently, I guess, live-streamed the delegate count. And, you know, we speculated uh, last week, we even had Chris Leoncheck give his thoughts about how the uh, Republican states would represent the 50 states. Well, they just had this background that looked like um, uh, some company had started sponsoring mugshots except it was the RNC, and they all got in front of that background and said, you know, we cast our votes for Donald J. Trump. And um, that's all they did, and so they didn't use that opportunity. Either they didn't really find it as compelling as a lot of Democrats found, um, or a lot of media pundits found um, the roll call from all the 50 states, so they didn't even care to do that. I mean, We'll see if that's good or bad that they chose uh, not to do that. I would think that was a missed opportunity. Then as far as the speeches, I, th- I think there was about three things going on, um, and some things even overlapped. One was you know, the, the Trump show and, and anything that kind of boosted him for two months from now and all of his people, and that was one theme to it. Another theme was I think they were trying to – and I think this is why the Democrats had a lot of those Republican speakers as well. It's called creating a permission structure, and, and I think they had a lot of African-American speakers, you know, Burgess Owens, Herschel Walker, um, Ben Carson, our own Vernon Jones, um, Daniel Cameron, yeah. who you mentioned earlier, yeah. Tim. I think they had all those African-Americans. Not that they're thinking they're going to get – Big numbers of African-Americans to switch. Maybe a few African-American males, I think, is, they say, is their target there. Um, you know, maybe a percentage point or two. But, you know, the folks that have seen a lot of what Trump's done and are like, I just don't want to be branded a racist. Well, if Burgess Owens and Herschel Walker, and I believe his name was LaRon Smith. He was the, the on the last night. Um, several others, they all say, well, you know, they spoke up for Donald Trump on a personal level. Then they try to create a permission structure so those white people that are cringing at Donald Trump's treatment of race can at least point to them as kind of a, well, maybe he's not racist because Herschel said he's not, that kind of thing. And and that was another theme. And then there were speeches like Tim Scott, like uh, Nikki Haley, like um, uh, Dan Crenshaw from Texas. I think he had one of the better speeches. It was like four minutes long, but it was actually – uh, not all the just 
hate and everything else. It was more about heroes. Now, I could see through the, you know, there's some coded language in there, but it was still about heroes. It was more positive. And that was kind of a third theme. Um, interestingly enough, Tom Cotton, who's one of those people like Tim Scott and like Dan Crenshaw and like Nikki Haley, that wants to have a platform for the future, he spoke and his speech was not nearly as good as those three. Um, so I, I noticed that as well. Uh, two more things, Melania Trump, she sounds, and it is not the fact that she's from Eastern Europe, I don't think. She has a very robotic delivery. Um, because I have met people that came over to America around her same age from Eastern Europe, and they do not speak with that same cadence and accent. It's, it's more of a robotic quality, and I don't know what's going on there. And then, Catherine, you mentioned about all the half-truths. I saw a fact checker that said Donald Trump said not one correct thing about Joe Biden in his speech, which is pretty amazing. I mean, there should be policy differences in the two, and it is your job and your right to speak of policy differences, but you should be able to do that without speaking half-truths, shouldn't you? Yes, of course. Yeah. So, you know, that was kind of my take on it. Well, let's get into the other part of this. And I think this may be the biggest theme of this convention. It's not going to be the McCloskey saying, uh, let's take away um, paid bail. I thought that was really a weird thing. To, you know, what I think they're known for is one thing, but then coming after paid bail, which is totally different in criminal uh, justice reform, was very odd. But it's not going to be those kind of things. To me, it's going to be that the speeches. Several of them were in a crowd with people not wearing masks, people that were older and vulnerable in this crowd, and there may be more, unfortunately, Herman Cain-like outcomes, or at least people getting sick out of these speeches. And to me, that may be the overriding story two or three weeks from now. What do you think, Catherine? Oh, that's a really good point. It very well could be. I mean, it ha it looked like a spreader event to me. All those, all those people crowded in there, cheering and yelling, you know, like doing all the things that, uh, that uh, create um, spreading, you know, it, it, it did not look healthy to me. And not a mask to be seen. I did see Daniel Azar, isn't that his first name, uh, the Secretary of uh, Health, Azar, I know it's, that's his last name he had a mask on one out of about a thousand people i think i saw another lady later in the crowd um not not many it was like five, it was like where's waldo yeah, they weren't easy to find um tim your thoughts on that becoming a theme of this convention down the road well i mean it was done purposely of, of course because one of the overriding things that was talked about during that convention was the fact that we have our hands on this virus. We have a handle on things. Thanks to Donald Trump's leadership, thousands of lives have been saved, and we've done this and we've done that, and that virus is in our rearview mirror, and we're on the comeback trail, folks. So you're not going to say that in front of a a lawn full of people wearing masks. You're going to do it just the opposite way. And, you know, let's be real here. The, the president doesn't care 
uh, if some of those people test positive for the virus or get sick, uh, must not care too much if they die. Herman Cain was never mentioned one time during that entire convention. And, and you know, that's what killed him going to that rally in Tulsa. Um, so, you know, if, if Trump doesn't care about his Secret Service agents testing positive for the virus and getting sick, he certainly don't care about the people out in the crowd that he's addressing. That's just well, that's just one of those things. What, how did Trump put it himself? It is what it is. Well, that's what he meant. It is what it is as long as it doesn't apply to him, of course. that That's the thing. So, yeah, that that was all done purposely. And I, I do think down the road a, a lot of people that were there are going to, you know, test positive. And God forbid they'll probably get sick and you know, I hope they'll all be okay, but, you know, that's, that's the state of that party right now, guys. Yeah, what's so strange about it is, um, and, of course, you need to function when the reality you're given, but our greatest presidents are people that have been faced with these huge crises and overcome them. And, I mean, you know, Bill Clinton, he had the best peace and prosperity um, that he's presided over. He's never going to break the top five, even top ten necessarily. It's the Lincolns that had to um, put the country together during the Civil War. Um, it's the Franklin Roosevelts that had to overcome the Great Depression and World War II. Um, even the, you know Republicans love Ronald Reagan. Well, he had to fight the Cold War. Uh, Lyndon Johnson. We had you know. Civil rights really came to not the head because unfortunately, see, it's still things are happening, but a, a pretty big uh, mass and had to uh, we, the country had to take a step forward. He took that step forward. Those presidents that had those challenges and faced them down, they're the ones that hi- history remembers the most fondly. Donald Trump, his challenge would be this virus. This uh, situation in our history with race relations, I mean, Obama gave him a good economy, and for a while he didn't screw it up. That's not going to what greatness is going to be made out of anyway. He needed this challenge if he wants to be considered great, and he just doesn't um, seem to even want to accept that challenge in any way. Well, um, in the next minute or two, let's uh, talk about this. We now have had both conventions. We've had two a day of polling where it showed Joe Biden had um, opened up a 13, 15-point lead. Then we had another poll or two that shows maybe it's a six-point lead. We don't know exactly where this race stands. So, Tim, where do you think it stands? Well, I look at the aggregate polling. Real Clear Politics has Biden up by 6.9. That's about a 25% drop in his lead in the last three weeks or so. Uh, 538 has it a little more, uh, 8.8. That's about a 13% drop from its high at the 1st of August. So I I think it's, you know, a seven to nine point race still. Uh, I do think the race is tight in some. I think some state polls have shown that. Now, I don't know if it's because the Republican convention just now ended, and that's fresh on people's minds or what. But for whatever reason, there has been a slight trend for the last couple of weeks. 
that's moved in Trump's direction. That there is no uh, denying. Um, uh, that doesn't necessarily reflect what people are thinking. Do y'all remember in 2016 when only about a third of the voters at this time in the race thought Trump was even going to win? In 2018, going right into the end of the race, the the American voters thought the Republicans were going to hold the House and, and they got thumped. So right now, even though Biden has this lead, the majority of people think Trump's going to win. What what does that say? Well, it's something that I think some pundits are saying we need to see more data. Luckily, we're going to get more data. Uh, Catherine, we'll get your thoughts on the state of the race on the other side of our guest. But now I'd like to welcome in for the first time on the Kudzu Vine, Dr. Matthew Garris. Welcome, Dr. Garris. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yes. Well, um, Dr. Garris, I want to start off by uh, letting you tell us, I know that part of your uh, background has Oklahoma in it, but just kind of give us your whole bio uh, with a political bent to it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm originally from Reading, Pennsylvania. Um, I've also lived for a while in, in um, Lakeland, Florida, Central Florida. Um, I, I just finished up my graduate training in Oklahoma where I've lived for the um, – where I got my doctorate degree at the University of Oklahoma and spent my last five years living. And now I'm a new political science professor at the University of Illinois Springfield. Yes. Well, we really want to uh, drill down on the Oklahoma part because we, you know, we have a lot of guests from different parts of the country, but we've really never um, spent a lot of time in Oklahoma, but I think it's got a lot of intriguing storylines. So just kind of, um, we know in its history, it has that old Southern, even though it's not really a Southern state, a Democratic history and all the way through like um, Senator Boren, who I guess served through the early uh, 90s in the Senate and, and several other mm -hmm. Democrats. But in recent years, it became much more staunchly Republican to the point where now it was one of the handful of about four states that when Barack Obama won, and it actually moved rightward. Kind of tell us where does Oklahoma as a state politically stand right now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think it's in some ways – very a very polarized state, just like much of national politics. In 2018, we have a we had a gubernatorial election, and um, Stitt ended up winning the election. The, the, the Republican Kevin Stitt, and he had a, he won with about 55 percent of the vote. But he actually in the in the primaries, um, Mick Cornett, who was the former um, governor of Oklahoma City, um, he, or I'm sorry, former mayor of Oklahoma City, he actually had more votes in the initial in the initial ballot and then in the runoff fit one and i just think that overwhelmingly um he, he was seen as the more conservative of the two in the runoff and then um in the same election in the 2018 gubernatorial election it was there was kind of some optimism among the democrats statewide to like maybe have a have an outside chance at, win, at winning the race um, the Democratic candidate was Drew Edmondson, who has a long political career in, in Oklahoma, but he but he ended up losing he ended up losing the race, um, and it wasn't really quite as close as some people were hoping it would be. Stitt, Stitt ended up winning 54 to like 42, 
Um, but during the same election, we had Kendra Horn win win Oklahoma's fifth congressional district, and she and at the time she was the first Repu- or the, the first Democrat to hold that that fifth that fifth district seat in Oklahoma in more than forty years, and she was the first Democratic woman ever to be elected to Congress from Oklahoma. Yes. Well, one more follow-up question before I pass it to Catherine and Tim. Um, kind of tell us geographically. We know there's a, a part of a state that looks really similar, and then there's the Panhandle, and we know there's you know two larger cities, a college town, things like that. Where are the votes at? Like, where does the Democrat win? Where does the Republican win geographically? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So um, when when Kendra Horn won, she, she was almost her victory was driven very heavily by Oklahoma County, which is right about the center of the state. And that's where Oklahoma city is located. And that's the biggest city in the state. Um, and then also Norman, which is Norman also in central Oklahoma is about, about 30 minutes South of Oklahoma city. And that's also a pretty democratic stronghold. Um, but, or, or at least in comparison to Oklahoma, Norman's more, more democratic than most, most of the rest of the state. But other than other than Oklahoma City, it's a, a very red state, as you as you mentioned earlier. Even Tulsa is it more the Republican than an average large city? Um, I'm I'm, I'm, less, I'm less familiar with the with the local politics in Tulsa, just because that wasn't the area of the state I lived in. But 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 yeah, the only consistent like Demo- the only Democratic district right now is that set in Central Oklahoma near. Um, Near Oklahoma City. Sure thing. Well, I'm going to pass this back to Catherine, and if there's some things that haven't got covered, I'll wrap up at the end. Catherine? Hi, Catherine. Hi. Thanks for being on with us tonight. Welcome to the Cousin yeah, Absolutely. Um, Thank you. I'm always I'm always interested in uh, political parties and how they uh, how they're or how well they're organized and how much power they have in, a, in any given state. So could you give us a little sort of snapshot of the Republican and the Democratic Party in Oklahoma and how they uh, do or do not have an impact on these elections, how important they are? Yeah, sure. Um, so I will say um, there are, like, active chapters at, at, um, where I live in Norman and and also statewide. Um so, so um, it, as I mentioned, um, it, it, in that 2018 race, there was um, a lot of Republican candidates running running for the governorship, including um, the former Lieutenant Governor um, um, Lamb and um, and Stitt. And Stitt was kind of, in some ways, seen as like a little bit, in my in my opinion, seen as the outsider. And he meet, um, as the outsider, and he managed to win the runoff and and the the victory. Um, and up until recently, the Democratic Party in Oklahoma was chaired by um, which was chaired by like a younger like a, by much younger people. So I think there's actually some, and some of this is related to the um, colleges as well. Some some youth in, in these parties. And does the Democratic uh, have? Are they organized and doing groundwork and that kind of thing, or are they more of a figurehead? 
Um, I think some of both. In the in the Kendra Horn election in 2018, that vic- her victory was a very big surprise, and she she definitely had like a local campaign and around the area, and there was definitely canvassing for her. Um, but at the same time, I think even even the people on the ca- campaign to some extent were su- were surprised by her victory. And um, in terms of like the National Party, with the exception of um, Bloomberg's PAC, she. That race, which was one of the most competitive in the 2018 cycle, didn't get really get a lot of attention other than that one Bloomberg pack from like the National Democratic Party because it was like I said the result ended up being a surprise. So I think one thing to look for in the 2020 elections to see if these parties on both sides are, are more active both at the local and the national level. Yeah, that, I think that's something we're all looking for. Well, great. Thank you very much. I'm going to pass it to Tim. Tim? Okay. Uh, Good evening, doctor. Thank you for being with us tonight. You know, when I was a teenager many, many years ago, um, the state of Oklahoma, the, the politics there was absolutely dominated by Democrats. I remember that Carl Albert was actually the U.S. Speaker of the House. Um, what happened to change all of that in that state? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually, while I was at the, while I was in Oklahoma, I actually worked at the Carl Albert Congressional Research and Study Center, um, which is named after Carl Albert because he, because he was the the, the speaker of the house, the highest ranking um, Oklahoma to hold in, in federal office. Yeah, I think like much of the South, um, it's um, partisan realignment. And I also know um, the most, before Kendra Horn, the most recent Democrat to hold a congressional seat was um, David Bourne's son, Daniel Bourne. And I I think the consensus is that he he basically lost his seat in a lot of the ways due to to redistrict. So I'd say the combination of those two factors. Oh, wow. Now, the the biggest thing visually – uh, that's happened in the media in that state this year, of course, happened on June the 20th when the much ballyhooed Trump rally was held at the Civic Arena in Tulsa. And by any stretch of the imagination, it did not go as planned. In the middle of a red State, one of the reddest of red states. Why did that rally fail? Yeah, so uh, I mean, it's, it's it's interesting to take a look at. I, I think, um, and and again, I'm I like, I'm sure other people might have different opinions on this. I think coronavirus was was like a major concern, and that and, and that maybe even people who like supported Trump were still concerned enough to maybe not attend. Um, I will say in relation to, like, coronavirus, um, Oklahoma was kind of a unique state in that much of the leadership, cities, and uh, and localities. So at, at no point was there a full stay-at-home order in place. Um, instead, Governor Smith had, off, had issued what he called a safer-at-home order. Um, and, he, and he kind of argued that this was mostly the same as the stay-at-home orders we had seen in other states. But um, it really only called for vulnerable populations to stay at home. It did cut down non-essential businesses for about a month. 
but yeah, I, 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 if I had to guess, I'd say that that was probably the biggest component that even if the, even if Republicans and others were were, were supporting Trump, that they weren't necessarily willing to go out in public at that point. Because at that point, this was before we had sports leagues reopening. Um, some, many states were still under stay-at-home orders. So I, I'd argue that that's probably the biggest reason. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you on that. Now, you you lived there for five years. You saw your share of statewide races. As you know, all of the statewide executive offices are held by Republicans, and I think two are nonpartisan. In your uh-huh. estimation, how does a Democrat win statewide in Oklahoma? What does that candidate look like? Is he a conservative or or what type would he be? Yeah, so that's that's an interesting question. And I think right now the answer might be that, like, at least in recent history, they don't win statewide. Um, yeah. I'd say, the, 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 yeah, the, the biggest example we have, again, is, is Kendra Horn. And I think you would have to um, – and, um, and, and like I said, she won in 2018 3,000 votes, and – but she won Oklahoma City, the Oklahoma, or Oklahoma County, which is, again, the Oklahoma City area. She won that county by over 10,000 votes. So it's real, it really is um, like Oklahoma City and, to some extent, Norman and, and, and some of the other cities that are really driving the Democratic support. But mm-hmm. so they'd have to like, – like I said, I, I think it, it, current history tells us that it, it, it's pretty hard to do because even in a year where Kendra Horn um, won – um, the Democratic statewide candidate didn't, and, and it, wasn't, it wasn't as close of an election as many Democrats would have hoped. Mm-hmm. And final question, and this is one of those best guess questions, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, but uh, you know, this is the presidential election year. A lot more people are coming out to the polls. And the question is, uh, one term in, after flipping, that seat with 50.7% of the vote, is uh-huh. Horn going to be able to hang on this year? I, I think maybe with the exception of um, Doug Jones' seat in Alabama, I think it's probably going to be the one of the Democrats' most difficult seats to hold. Um, uh-huh. We know that over in recent history, and as, as politics have become more nationalized, incumbency has, meant, has, been, has been meaning less. But at the same time, I think if the Democrats are active nationwide and they're particularly active in Oklahoma city. I think she could win. I think it's definitely, like I said, I think it's going to be one of the hardest democratic seats to hold on to. I think the, I think the one thing that might benefit her a little bit is in terms of like at least national party resources. I think if the current polls hold that the national Republican party is going to be more concerned with trying to hold onto the Senate than flipping a lot of these house seats. But that being said, um, I still think this is definitely going to be like a top five seat for them to try and flip in terms of house elections. Um, Cook and most of the other like political rating systems all, all have this seat as a toss up right now. And um, the one, one few, one, there's only been a couple polls, but the most recent one conducted earlier this month had, had Kendra Horn sitting at about 51% in the district. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
and, and that had her up by about five, which, as you know, with an individual poll, that's essentially the margin of error. Yeah. Well, thank you, Doctor. And with that, I will send it back to David. David? Yeah, thank you. All right. They left some questions for me. Um, if you look okay. at all of the U.S. Senate races around our uh, nation, there's probably no greater contrast in the two candidates than the Oklahoma Senate race. You have Abby Broyles, who's younger, mm-hmm. fresh face, was on the uh, television news in one of the Oklahoma cities, and Jen, Jim Inhofe, who's been around Washington for years, is, is older than both of the uh, presidential candidates. Um, yep. What kind of chance does Abby Broyles have against Jim Inhofe? Yeah, so, um, like I'd say, I think that it's recent history tells us probably not a very good one. Um, J- um, Imhoff is definitely playing the tactic of, tip- of in typically safe incumbents where they're to some extent not acknowledging that they have a challenger. I know um, she's tried to set up a debate, and so far he's kind of not been interested um, at, for, from – most likely because he doesn't, again, he doesn't want to acknowledge that he has a, has a competitor. Um, I will say though, in comparison to previous Senate candidates statewide, I think Abby Broyles is more of like a, a well-known name because of her background and um, her presence. So I think, I think, again, I think it's a, if this, well, I think Kendra Horn is, is in for a tough reelection bid. And I think the Senate is like much more difficult. It's, pretty much rated as like a safe seat for the Republicans. But I'd say the path forward for a good showing would be much like in 2018, a big democratic wave um, with high turnout from Oklahoma city and, and, and elsewhere or in, and not other cities. But, but yeah, I, I think most assessments say that she, she um, it's a, it's a pretty safe seat. Yes, and then the uh, other question was kind of a follow-up. A few weeks ago, we went off the air and uh, on Twitter uh, read that Abby Broyles um, had been hit. Her car had been struck, and it was a hit-and-run situation. Um, I looked, and I think Tim's looked and Catherine's looked, and we hadn't seen any follow-up. Have you heard of if that was just simply she's been hit-and-run and we don't know why there's been no one um, you know, implicated in this matter? Any more information on that? Um, I, I don't. I'm in the same boat as, as, as all of you. I, 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 read, I did see the initial story, but, uh, but I'm in the same position as you that I've not seen much follow-up on it since then. Yeah, and it could be a, you know, a drunk driver didn't want to get arrested. There could be no more foul play, but the timing was very curious given her high-profile nature and this political environment. Well, um, Dr. Garris, I still want to talk about one more thing. If I'm not mistaken yeah. – um, Oklahoma has, if not the highest, the second highest Native American population in the country. And there's been two issues recently that have come up. We've discussed, I think, both of them on the Kudzu Vine. I know we discussed the Key Nation. Uh, apparently, back in Calhoun, Georgia, which is uh, very close to where Tim and I are, and really not that far from Catherine either, at New Echota, um, the Cherokee Nation signed part of a treaty with the American government saying they had the right to a delegate. Now, they have not used this right for over 100 years, but a few uh-huh. months ago, they said that you know they may want to get a delegate to the uh, Congress. Um, 
how much news has that made in the state of Oklahoma since one would think that most of the voting for that delegate spot would come from uh, the state of Oklahoma? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I will say I moved a, a couple of months ago, so um, I do know it, it, ha- it did receive some, some, some attention, um, but I, I'm certainly not as much of an expert on this topic but yeah, but I do know that yes, you're you're correct about um, the populations there, and that they'd probably be likely uh, a potential target for for, rep- for representation coming from Oklahoma. Um, and I don't know if this was the other issue you wanted to bring up. I, I also know the the Supreme the McGritt Supreme Court case also had has very impactful um, implications for Oklahoma. Um, so if we have time, I, I can talk about that yes. a little bit as well. Let's yeah, do because that so, was my next uh, question about eastern Oklahoma. Yeah, absolutely. So um, just this summer, the Supreme Court ruled in McGritt versus Oklahoma that um, about – I'm sorry, I cut out for a second. The, the court yes. ruled that basically it, roughly about half the land in Oklahoma, mostly um, eastern Oklahoma, but this includes areas – such as um, Tulsa, that basically this is Native American territory as determined by a congressional statute. And the biggest implication for this ruling in Oklahoma is on the criminal justice system. Um, And basically under the Major Crimes Act, um, what this ruling means is that uh, major crimes taking place on Native American lands involving Native Americans now fall under the jurisdiction of the federal court system opposed to Oklahoma state's court. And then minor crimes taking place in this area fall under the, tri- the, the tribal court. And um, th- this is similar to setups as we see in um, other states with major Native American populations, um, including like Arizona, New Mexico, and Montana. But but yeah, and then it also has some some implications for things such as like tax revenues and um, environmental regulations and, and civics case, civic cases as well. And these are mostly going to be sorted out by um, the state and the, and the tribes. And I, I'd say you, you asked me about um, the Cherokee Nation getting a, a delegate to Congress. And I'd say of the two, I think that this, this um, at least in my, at least in what I've seen, this, this, the, the Supreme Court ruling has probably seen a little bit more attention but they're both definitely issues that are important to the state. Yes, and so so no chance we're going to see a state of eastern Oklahoma. <laughs> uh, no, um, I, I don't think so. And, and, and again, I'm certainly not a um, an expert on Native American politics and 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 all the complexities that go in with sorting out tribal law versus um, state and federal law, but. I think the, the Supreme Court was pretty clear in their ruling that just because it's considered um, tribal territory doesn't mean that they necessarily like own the land. And I think they compared it sim- similarly to, um, to to other cases as well. Yes. Well, Dr. Garris, I want to thank you for your time. Um, before you leave, if you want to just tell our listeners where they might could read your writings on social media or anywhere else, let them know. Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
on social media, I'd say I'm most active um, on Twitter, and my my um, like Twitter handle is just my name, Matt Garris, G-E-R-A-S. Um, and then I also have a, a, a personal website, which is again is my na- my name, MatthewGarris.com, and I share a lot of my my writing on my website. Well, good deal. Well, uh, thank you for coming on and sharing with us about Oklahoma politics. And if this state tightens up more in the future, we may have to call on you again. Yeah, I appreciate it. Have a great night. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Yes, Dr. Matthew Garris, now of the University of Illinois Springfield, but formerly uh, residing in Oklahoma. So I guess he becomes our de facto uh, Oklahoma political expert, and and actually as of late, that's that's worth having now. Um, yeah. Well, somebody reverberated on me, Catherine. I think when we left off uh, prior to him joining us, it was going to be your turn to kind of tell us where you see this uh, race, the presidential race, standing right now. Well, like Tim said, it's obviously tightening up. Um, I still think you know Biden has a strong advantage. But I'm always, uh, I'm always on pins and needles uh, going up, leading up to these elections, especially after 2016. So we all have to get out there and work and make sure that everybody has a has access to their um, ballot and a way to make sure that their ballot is counted. So, uh, but yeah, it's tightening up. I, I think it's pro- I think Tim's probably right. Somewhere between seven and nine ahead for um, Biden. Uh, But again, that could, I mean, I I think a lot will depend on how things work out going forward in the next weeks on the pandemic. I think it's, I think the pandemic is going to be a a major part of people's uh, voting decisions. Yes, um, I'll tell you this. I don't know that it's tightening. I don't know that it's not either. You look at those polls that came out Friday and showed a 13 and a 15 point lead, may not be tightening. Um, and then if you look at the poll that was, uh, I think it was a YouGov Yahoo ball, six points, maybe it is. We need more information. And I think a lot of folks are saying that. Nate Silver says it, uh, Harry Innan says it. We need more information before we can say anything conclusive. Now, I'll say this. If it tightens, that's not a bad thing for Joe Biden and the Democrats because if people get complacent and think, oh, man, he's 10, 12 points up ahead. Man, I look at that Senate race. Uh, Democrats got that one too, and then they just don't show up. Then this thing tightens up more. And and then, of course, the national polls are not swing state polls because if you win California by – Four more points than you won in 2016, that doesn't get you more electoral votes. you got to win Michigan, Ohio, um, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, Arizona, those kind of states. So uh, I don't think tightening up necessarily a bad thing. I think we need more polls. Um, the ratings for the Republican convention, neither convention really had that good a rating, so it was kind of the hardcores watching, either hardcore politicos or hardcore Democrats and hardcore Republicans watching their own convention. The Republican convention actually had less people viewing it than the Democratic convention. Um, so I don't know how the Republicans would have picked up off the convention. Now, was it outside factors? Who knows? Now, we've got about 13 minutes, and we've got two big topics to talk about. I don't know which one we can cover better, so I guess maybe we better cover the one that's more on our plate, that's, le- that's more likely to 
not be as in the news next week. So let's go ahead and go with Kenosha, and not just Kenosha, but uh, Portland, and I believe somewhere in Pennsylvania, because the violence has many um, layers to it now. You had the police action that was taken in Kenosha, but then you had the response in Kenosha, the response in Portland, and then somewhere along the path, like I said, I want to say in Pennsylvania, where you have really vigilantes that aren't the members of any police force just enforcing their own feelings, not laws, just their own whims. Um, And they've actually executed more violence uh, than the Kenosha police, and Donald Trump will not condemn them. Um, Catherine, kind of what's your thoughts on what we're seeing in the next phase of this uh, situation with po- police, you know, brutality is probably not strong enough word, but police about violence that ne- then now goes into another stage. Well, I think um, it's all it's really hard to predict because we don't know if there's going to be another shooting, if there's going to be another incident that, um, that, you know, to which we respond by, you know, protesting. Um, it's just heartbreaking to watch these. Um, it's just heartbreaking. And I, I think I think it, it it's it's really incumbent on all our leaders to be um, talking about this and talking about the talking about race in a very um, honest and forthright way that but none of us nobody's willing to do that. And I don't think we're going to really make any progress until we do. I shouldn't say nobody's willing to do that. I think that it's just really hard. Um, so, I, I, but I do think it all depends on what happens next. Is there going to be another shooting? Is there going to be another, um, you know, vigilante who comes through and tries to solve it themselves? You know, all these things have an impact on what the next thing is. It's very difficult to predict, in my opinion. Yeah. Tim, I'll say this. Um, You know, I haven't seen all the video. I haven't interviewed any police officers from Kenosha, Wisconsin. I haven't read their policy manual to see where they should use force at what stage and how much and all this. There's investigations that have to get done by people that have more info and been trained. But I know pretty conclusively that a 17-year-old does not need to take to the streets with a weapon and just shoot whoever he feels he can shoot. That doesn't really need an investigation. That's pretty clear, and that's what we've had, and we've now had this two more times since this 17-year-old in Wisconsin. Um, What does this add to this conversation, and and where does this take us? Unfortunately, there are two – distinctly different narratives about everything in this country right now. And one is on this situation right here. Believe it or not, there is a solid cohesive movement on social media 
where they are turning Kyle Rittenhouse into some kind of folk hero. They are demonizing the people that he shot as being the instigators of the problem, that he was just, you know, self-defense and, uh, you know, when you have stuff like this going on, are you going to have an answer? I really do think it all goes back to leadership. What would a normal president do, guys? He would try to be soothing fears, calming people down, uh, you know, asking everyone to just pause, uh, saying that he abhorred the violence, uh, whoever commits it. But we just don't have that in this country. And until we do, I just don't think we're going to, you know, have any access to any of this. This kid was not even supposed to have a weapon to start with like that. You're supposed to be 18 years old. Well, he's not. He was from another state. What was he doing there? Who stirred him up and got him to go up there? Well, you know, I think I know who did. I think y'all know who did. And I just don't think this situation's going to be solved or, or even worked on at a decent level until we have somebody else in the White House. That's the way I feel about it. Yes, I mean, and I think finding the hard words in a situation like this is extremely difficult. I think Robert Kennedy in Indianapolis uh, the night Dr. King was killed is one of the rare examples of someone maybe hitting just the right note. But he was a special speaker that had lived through something so unfortunately identical with his brother that he could speak to it. So it's not necessarily just any politician able to say the right thing, but we know what the wrong thing is, and it's kind of what Donald Trump does most any time he gets a hold of Twitter. Um, you know, makes it worse, and he's talking about going there Thursday. Um, one new kind of implication of this was um, in reaction at first the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, they didn't want to take the court in their playoff game with the Magic, and uh, and you find out more about it, and, and it really wasn't that they said, we're not playing, and that's all. They actually had talked to the attorney general, and, and they were trying to um, be more proactive, um, more out of it. Then it came, none of the basketball games were played that night. Some of the soccer games weren't played. I don't think any of the baseball games were played. Um, there was other sports. It was kind of, at first it was set as a protest. Later people said it was almost like a um, – cathartic kind of thing that some of the players just were so emotionally drained by it. And that probably adds into the fact they're in a bubble through coronavirus as well. And they needed some days off, but then coming out of that, um, they wanted something done and what exactly can owners do? Hard to say, but owners did open up um, every basketball arena in the country and I don't know if that's 28, 29 arenas. There may be a shared arena or two, like in Los Angeles. But they're going to open them up uh, for voting locations. And it seems like they said, let's use the ballot. Um, Catherine, how important was just any message out of this that the athletes um, took place in? And by the way, WNBA is included uh, with that along with the NBA. Um. 
I'm sorry, the question was how important is this? Well, how important the, the, the fact that they then brought the focus back, not just to not playing for uh, several games or postponing the games, but to then actually say, Let's, the major thing that came out of this was NBA arenas, are all of them are now going to be opened as voting sites or volunteered as voting sites, um, and, and they want to bring it back to the change comes through the ballot. Well, I think that's really important, and I think it's um, in a time when um, everyone was very emotional and very heartbroken, I think that was a really um, – wise and thoughtful um, answer to all this. I mean, it's, it's, it's a difficult time, and to be able to come up with this idea in the midst of this, I thought was, was really quite, um, quite impressive. And um, so I think it's great. But, you know, I have my, I have my qualms about, I mean, I think it's great that we'll have all these um, arenas for voting, but I do have my qualms about it as far as access, transportation, parking, all those kind of things. But it's certainly a good solution uh, for the limited, for the closing of so many precincts around the country. So I think that's, it's a really good solution and I, admire them for coming up with it at a time when things were so emotional. Yeah, I mean, once again, I mean, basketball can only do so much. Hockey or football or soccer can only do so much. Uh, uh, Tim, let's kind of take this in another direction, but similar. Um, a lot of these um, protests and a lot of the things we're seeing are at the pro sports level, uh, sports that usually probably have a little more um, moderate to Democratic-friendly demographic. What do you think will happen if we started seeing some of these type of actions taken on behalf of Southern college football players where their fan bases are more likely to be conservative and Republican? You know, I don't know if we will see much of that from student athletes uh, because they are students and being athletes, it's what they depend on to actually stay in college. It would take a group of them to do it. Single players doing it. I don't know if I see that. I really don't know if I see it in, you know, uh, the Southern conferences. I, I think I think it would be very, very tough on them. It would, however, have a profound effect. Uh, even more profound if some of the coaches would step forward and say something or some of the university chancellors or, you know, just anyone down here. But I I, I don't know if I expect to see that, David. Do you? I, I don't know. And here's what's so crazy or ironic or whatever about this. Like, let's say that the NBA's actions cause them to lose. And it's so hard to tell because – it's apples and, and pineapples um, most years to this year with coronavirus. But if, if the ratings come down and then later the ticket sales come down and the revenue base shrinks by 25%, then those pro players are going to fill that in their um, wallets. A college player, all they're getting is a, a scholarship. Um, 
You know, there's probably, if you're good enough to play at Alabama, LSU, Georgia, uh, Georgia Tech, wherever, there's probably another school down the line that'll take you because you're that talented. So you're not risking anything economically in the same way. Um, Some of these guys know they're going to go pro. Uh, An NFL team's going to draft them. Um, And we can talk about other sports later. So they have less to lose. So it seems like they might be willing to kneel for the anthem or – um, say we're not going to play. And I think if they do, that you know, it would be a much different backlash, um, much more interesting backlash in a lot of ways because I think a lot of conservatives have just turned off and they about treat it like Kelly Loeffler treats her own WNBA team. Well, you know, David, I saw what Jared Kushner said, uh, and especially about LeBron James. LeBron James has given tens of millions of dollars to all kind of charitable organizations, everything from health care groups to the boys and girls clubs and all kinds of – what has Jerry Kushner ever done for anybody? See, that's why I think what they're doing is hypocritical. What they're saying about these athletes are hypocritical. These athletes are the ones that actually step out and put their money where their mouth is. These people like Kushner and these four little rich crowd, they're, they're the ones that do nothing. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, and I think it's the same thing, the same false narrative with athletes and with actors. Um, you know, when when an athlete speaks out, they can be Bill Bradley on the left, and they can be Jack Kemp on the right. And the fact that they're an athlete doesn't take away their right to be an American citizen. Same thing with actors. You know, a lot of actors in Hollywood are on the left, but then when Ronald Reagan spoke out, a lot of Republicans loved that. So Sonny Bono, he was a star, and he became a Republican congressman. So therefore, you know, don't take people's citizenship away and their right to speak and donate and endorse and everything else just because they have those roles. Now, of course, if they say something you don't agree with or it just doesn't sound very coherent, call that out too. Um, but that, that's just my thoughts on that. Well, unfortunately, I have a feeling the topic we didn't get to will only have unfolded another layer, and that is COVID on college campuses. Also, um, of North Carolina, Drew Savicki will be our guest next week. And until then, then the Cudsy Vine. Good night, y'all. Good night, guys. Night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. With a strong and united 